Hi everyone, I'm Gary Lewis and welcome to the Geo Podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the basic rock forming minerals, the silicates. So I'm sure for many of you, you can remember back to when you were in school and you talked about a series of chemicals that were the organic chemicals, the carbon-based chemicals. And what was really cool about that is that there was a systematic way that these chemicals formed and, in fact, were even named, like ethane, methane, propane, heptane, etc. And the structures became more and more complex, but they followed this systematic process of how they became more complex. Do you remember that? Well, the same is true of the silicate minerals. They're the major rock-forming minerals that make up all of the rocks on Earth. And while there isn't a systematic naming scheme, which would have been awesome, we do now recognise that there's a basic silicate mineral building block, and it's how that building block is joined together, becoming more and more complex, that gives us the huge range of minerals that we see on Earth. So let me get down into the chemistry just for a little bit and talk about that building block. If we took all the rocks on Earth and then ground them up and then broke them down to their fundamental building blocks, their atoms, we would find two elements make up the bulk of the rocks. And they are the elements oxygen and silicon. Silicon makes up around about 30% and oxygen makes up about 45% of the elements of the crust. Now, we will all recognise the element oxygen. It's the stuff we breathe that keeps us alive. But we know it as a gas rather than being something that's combined with other things to form a mineral. Chemically, oxygen can bond with two other things. It's like it has two arms that can link to something else. So the oxygen we breathe is actually two oxygen atoms Each atom with its two arms outstretched, clinging onto each other. So you've got both of the arms are holding onto something, in this case, the other oxygen atom. And while I'm trying to simplify it, this is a really important concept when we talk about minerals. Because what we have are these atoms with arms that need to be clinging onto something. You can't have one arm free. The arm needs to be holding onto something else. And that's how we get the mineral structures that we have. So now let's talk about the other element that makes up 30% of the Earth's crust, which is the element silicon. And it has four arms. So each of the four arms needs to cling onto something. And in the basic rock forming minerals, each of those four arms is normally clinging onto an oxygen atom. So all of the silicon arms, they're all holding onto an oxygen atom and the oxygen atoms have a free arm ready to cling to something else. And that is the basic building block of all the silicate minerals. A silicon surrounded by four oxygens, but each of the oxygen is ready to cling onto something else. And we call this basic building block the silicon tetrahedron. It's called that because it has one silicon atom surrounded by four oxygen in the shape sort of like a square-based pyramid. So the tetra meaning four and the hedron meaning shape. So you end up with this pyramid building block shape that all of the silicate minerals are built from. 
I'm sorry if I got a little technical there, but I think it's really important to understand this process that all the minerals are formed from where you've got this building block, but the building block has four free arms that need to bond to something else. And it's what those four arms bond to that gives us the different minerals. So let's talk about all the different possibilities that we can have with that building block and what it can link to. So the simplest is if that building block, that silicon tetrahedron's four free arms link through to another element like iron or manganese. And when you've got that silicon tetrahedron surrounded by these other metallic elements, then we have minerals that fall into the first group of silicates. They are the single tetrahedron minerals and they are minerals like olivine. And if you know anything about the mineral olivine, you'll know it comes in slightly different forms. They come in slightly different colors. And that depends on whether there's an iron or a magnesium atom between those silicon tetrahedrons. And there's a whole range because you could have four ions or four magnesiums or a combination somewhere in between two and two or three and one, etc. Now, each of those metallic elements, the iron or the magnesium, it also has now a free arm that's dangling that needs to connect to something. And in these minerals, they connect to another silicon tetrahedron. So you get all of these individual single tetrahedrons surrounded by iron and manganese. So it's that isolated silicon tetrahedron that makes up this mineral group. But what would happen if one tetrahedron actually joined to another tetrahedron. So the arm hanging out of one of the oxygen actually is shared with another tetrahedron. And in that case, we get double tetrahedrons joined together. And then all their free arms are surrounded by oxygen, magnesium, manganese, and so on. And that is the example of a double tetrahedron mineral like epidote. So we started with singles and now we've got double tetrahedron minerals. But it doesn't stop there. Sometimes tetrahedrons actually join together to form rings of tetrahedrons surrounded by these other elements. And they are minerals like tourmaline and the beryl minerals, emerald, aquamarine and so on. Then we have the minerals where you get chains of tetrahedrons all joined together. So one tetrahedron joined to the next, joined to the next, joined to the next to form a long chain. And the single chains of tetrahedrons, they are the minerals of pyroxenes. But you can also have double chains of tetrahedrons. So two joined together, joined to another two, joined to another two. So you get two next to each other, paired long double chains. And they are the minerals of the amphibole group. Then the next level of complexity is if you have the tetrahedrons all joined together in a flat sheet, like pages of a book, and they are the mica minerals. And finally, if all the tetrahedrons are joined together through their oxygens to other tetrahedrons, so you get this framework in every direction of just tetrahedrons joined together, so nothing but silicon, nothing but oxygen. That's when you form the mineral quartz. Now, I've got to tell you, I am simplifying this down to give you a feel for this, how the structure changes to the different minerals that we get. And in fact, it's the structures of those tetrahedrons that give us a lot of properties of the minerals. 
For example, the micas are these sheet structures of tetrahedrons. And when we collect mica, we all know that you can peel it off in sheets. And that is because of that silicon structure. Likewise, with quartz that forms this complete framework, this network, if you try to break quartz, there are no zones of weakness and the quartz forms these curved layers. We call it conchoidal fracture. And that's because there's no zone of weakness. All the bonds between all the tetrahedrons are the same. So when you break it, it doesn't have like a known weakness zone that it can break along. It breaks in those curved surfaces. So now let me add just a level of complexity to this that will explain some of the other minerals that we find. As I mentioned earlier, silicon is the sort of fundamental building block of all of these minerals because it has four arms dangling out that join to the oxygen to form that silicon tetrahedron. But there's another common element in the Earth's crust, and that's the element aluminium or aluminum. And it's about the same size as the silicon, but it only has three arms. So sometimes the aluminium actually replaces the silicon and because it only has three arms, it means that it has a different way of bonding to other elements. And in fact, instead of it being this square-sided pyramid, you now only have three oxygens joined to the silicon, so you get a three-sided pyramid. And what that does is inside the structure of the silicate minerals, because you've replaced silicon with aluminium, it actually causes the structure to have zones of weakness within it. And we see those zones of weakness as cleavage of the mineral. So let's take an example. Imagine we've got quartz, which is silicon and oxygen just bonded together to form this framework. And if we took some of the silicons out and we replaced them with aluminium, then now what we've got is a framework structure that is different from quartz. And in fact, the framework structure is now very much like the feldspars. Because the aluminium only has three arms compared to the silicon that has four arms, the whole mineral ends up with a negative charge. And because of the change of shape and the negative charge, other elements can be brought into the crystal structure like sodium or potassium or calcium. These all have one arm and they fit nicely into the structure, giving us the big range of feldspar minerals from orthoclase to albite to anorthite. And we all know that the feldspar minerals show beautiful cleavage. If you hit them with a hammer, unlike quartz that forms those curved shapes, the feldspars will break along these zones of weaknesses that's caused by this change in chemistry. So there we have the basic mineral structures within the silicates, but let's go and talk about the terms that mineralogists give to these groups. So those single tetrahedron groups, we call those the nesosilicates. The double tetrahedrons are called the sorosilicates. The ring-shaped tetrahedrons are called the cyclosilicates. The single and double change are called the endosilicates. The sheet-like structures are called the phyllosilicates, and the framework structures are called the tectosilicates. I just mentioned this because sometimes those terms are used in mineral identification books. 
So this has probably been a little too technical for some folks, but I'm trying to get across to you this feeling that things in the mineral world really are nicely structured. The sad thing is that unlike in the carbon chemistry world, where we've got a standardized way of naming things, in the mineral world, we are somewhat beholden to the history of how minerals were named for the way that mineral names are. So there isn't a nice systematic naming way of minerals so you can say, oh, okay, just by the name, I know that's a phyllosilicate. But for me, knowing there's a systematic way that minerals are built up from that silicon building block gives me some barrels to throw those names in, making it a lot easier for me to understand and remember the minerals and even their properties. So I hope this one has helped you as well. And as always, if you're looking for more information, whether you're a student or a teacher or a rockhound or someone that just has a love for learning about our planet, then please go and visit the GeoEtc website. That's G-E-O-E-T-C dot com, where you'll find lots more information. And as always, keep on rocking. <laughs>